Hi, everybody. Welcome to No Country. I'm J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Hey. Chris, how's it going? Good, David. Really, really good, actually. Yeah? Why is that? I'm just excited about stuff. I'm I'm doing some good <laughs> writing. I, I feel good. Uh, autumn is coming on here. The heat's calming down. But I just feel good about what I'm working on. Excellent. Whenever I survive one of the grueling summers in El Paso or now Oklahoma, there is a sort of relief. So tomorrow it's going to be 60 degrees here and it feels like you made it through something. It feels like you survived in a sense. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a whole new form of energy coming in. I There's a bit of a smoke in the air here from the California fires, but there's also uh, something I love of a scent that comes down from the mountains. Um, and I think of it as kind of like the olfactory equivalent of uh, sometimes I see eagles, you know, and they, they drift across with, you know, such effortless beauty, you know, and you think, wow. And every once in a while at this time of year, there's a kind of a scent that comes down from uh, the higher elevation that I find really energizing. Last time we were talking, we left it on a note about language. We started off in episode zero talking about place and home, and that morphed into a conversation very specifically about language. So as is the format of this show, I wanted to pick up that thread pretty much right where we left it off. We were talking about the tonality of words, about the sound quality of words, and you had mentioned when we had been talking off mic about a particular exercise that you do with your students sometimes that I thought was a good jumping off point for that conversation. Right. Well, you know that expression carved in stone, which is, you know, an unfortunate cliche now. And I like to get students breaking down cliches, thinking about where they came from. Uh, So I have these, uh, I've got rocks and tiles and I get people to, actually carve a word, to physically carve a word into these surfaces, and then to pass them around hand to hand. You know, no action at a distance of just speaking in the air, although the human voice is is beautiful, and it's such a practical way of communicating. We forget about the physicality of words. You know, if you have to actually carve something into a hard surface, you, you start experiencing that surface for, for, you know, that hole, whether it be a, a rock, a river stone, a piece of tile. Suddenly that's very tangible and physical in your hands. And you're, you're carving a word into that. Well, which word do you choose? Why that word? Mm. You know, you suddenly experience language in this very, very physical sort of way, which is, it has to be how it all began. Um, we we know that, you know, intuitively, but it's hard to rediscover that. And, you know, everyone's so distracted with our texting and cell phones and video games. And I find that students have this, uh, there's a look of wonder on their face when they actually have to not just tap at a keyboard, but gouge, you know, something into a hard surface. It makes them really think about words. Yeah, and what's so fascinating about that, it's making me think back on all these historical items that have been unearthed in recent years by archaeologists. So it makes me, first of all, of course, think of the Ten Commandments that Moses brings down. And the fact that they are put in stone is so interesting because you had to come up with ten things that were so important that you would spend all that time chiseling into stone what was important. And the oldest written Sumerian tablet that they found. Do you know? Do you know what it was? I've forgotten. I I I, I, was, I do know, but I've forgotten for the moment. It was simply a contract for a farmer who needed a piece of land from somebody else. Right. So the very oldest thing that we found is this. It's the equivalent of finding someone's AT and T bill in the trash. But we found this thing carved into stone because. That's just how you had to do it back then. And when you talk about the ephemerality of texting and the fact that even when you're typing into something like Microsoft Word, 
you know, the words appear and then the words disappear. And it's, it's very airy and light. There are even writing programs now that seem designed very specifically to feel as though you're in a cloud, that you're floating on air, that, you know, that there's nothing sort of concrete about it. But fuck, man, hearing you talk about this stuff, I want to go carve something into stone. I want to, I want to chisel it out. So is there perhaps a happy medium in writing with a pen or, or some kind of physicality to that, that that we're missing as writers? Oh, I, I think that anything that lies you know, in the intermediate realm that's achievable, that is physical, helps enormously. I, I insist that students never, uh, you know, write directly in a classroom situation on a computer or tablet. I want them writing by hand in notebooks. I think that physical muscle memory is so vital. And it makes us appreciate the the endurance of words. You know, how did that how did that happen? Because they are so disposable. You know, they, they are so easily lost. Um, and the magic of recording imbues language with magic. You know, do you know the uh, the great science fiction story, A Canticle for Leibowitz? I, this is, is this Harlan Ellison? Uh, no, it's a, uh, an author named Miller. Uh, I can't remember, oh, okay. I can't remember his first name right off the top of my head, but what how it, Anyhow, I'm not, I'm not familiar. It's with a futuristic uh, sort of science fiction satire about basically a shopping list from the past that is found and then is is taken as kind of a religious sacred document um, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of a beautiful metaphor for the power of language that survives over time the pure survival of language gives it a meaning uh, and a sense of occult power yeah. that is really we need to dis- to rediscover that not only as writers but I think as you know just as ordinary communicating citizens to to value language and the possibilities of language more fully yeah and so when you get to something like texting for example it's it's highly degraded language and I've seen novels that have been attempted to be written in sort of text speak um now, some might say that that in particular is just how languages evolve, and they've always evolved over time. Um, is there something that is sort of different about texted language that is particularly abhorrent? Or, well, I don't know, what, what do you think? Well, you know, I actually worked uh, in the past when, when texting was becoming possible, as a technological achievement within the telecommunications industry. Uh, I was running an advertising agency and, and working with uh, how to launch that out to the, the public in Australia. Um, and I worked with a lot of the, you know, the engineers making that technology possible. And none of them had any considerations for some of the implications of texting. In other words, car accidents or pedestrian accidents or misunderstandings. We've all had some funny misunderstandings regarding text messages. There's a wonderful Key and Peel episode about that. Uh, remember that they're the comedy duo. Um, mm-hmm. We've all, you know, know how texting can backfire, but I think there's a deeper level of, of degradation that uh, goes back to, the old uh, beginnings of, of mass communications advertising, where we started to get abbreviations um, to save space, you know, and clever new spellings of things, you know, where N-I-G-H-T became N-I-T-E, you know, and L-O-V-E became L-U-V, and on and on and on. Um, I think it's a degradation of, of the magic of, uh, of words, but also of slang. Um, slang used to, you know, be an argo, you know, right? It, it, it would demarcate a special group of people. And the idea was you weren't supposed to penetrate that group. Um, it was a magical circle, you know? And 
part of the, the texting new abbreviation degradation of language thing is that it's all inclusive. Everybody's got to know what's going on. You got to stay up with, you know, everything. And it's like, well, I don't know if I want to know about everything like that. You know, it's kind of like, yeah. you know. Well, no, it's, it's also speaks to the magic of words because the words magic and the occult are very strongly linked and occult means to be hidden. And there is a problem, I think, in any sort of art form, uh, especially one that's as closely tied to magic as writing is, uh, in inclusivity. This is perhaps maybe our first controversial opinion of the entire show, but there is a real problem with sort of having everybody join in on the party. If everybody joins in on the party, it's not a party anymore. It just is what it is. It's just regular life. So what I'm basically trying to say to sort of piggyback off of what you're saying about about the texting is that there's sort of nothing uh, artful about the, the dumbing down aspect of it, is if, if I'm understanding you correctly. Oh, absolutely. No, you are. You are. And I think that's exactly the problem. I mean, inclusivity in isolation is not, there's nothing wrong with that concept, but the mechanisms for it, that's the problem. Where you, mm-hmm. where you degrade the standards of things, where you take away from the occult quality of language so that everyone can understand it. Uh, meanwhile, things like, you know, the rock exercise that I do with the students, what that really is about is showing just how difficult communication is, how magical language is. It's remarkable that we can understand each other at all. Mm-hmm. And we can only protect and nourish that capability on a cultural level by returning to a kind of a sacred sense of words. And that does not suggest texting abbreviations and cute little phrases and, you know, now icons and emojis. We can't even, you know, you know, I mean, think of some of those things. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's nonsense as opposed to magic, you know? It's going exactly the opposite way. And it's also a sort of, I'm wondering about texting and abbreviation and metaphor. And I'm thinking about how metaphor, when you say that it's so interesting that people are actually able to communicate with each other at all. And then you have... Uh, something like metaphor, where I can tell you that something is like something else. And if you're kind of vibing on my level, you'll get that. That, that vibration, that, that, which I do think is probably a vibration, that's when something magical begins to happen, right? Because magic is this sort of like association between two things. So the difference between that and the metaphor of, let's say, an LOL, where it's laughing out loud, but you're not really laughing out loud. It's just sort of a inclinate, like it's, it can be anything from an indication that you're not mad to perhaps you found something that someone said mildly amusing. Maybe you feel a bit awkward. Um, it's sort of the opposite. Whereas a metaphor is, is, a, is something that's vague, that is attempting to communicate through magical resonance, something very concrete LOL is something that is very concrete that is leaving itself open to several different interpretive possibilities, which is very consumeristic. It's like a consumeristic way of communicating with your friends and family, isn't it? Well, yeah, and it gets to that, that, that key demarcation between symbol and sign. You know, a sign is always something pointing to something else. And even a symbol, as powerful as they can be, and I think we're living in a, in a historical moment right now where uh, symbols have an unusual degree of power, uh, as they do from you know, you know, various times in history, I think because of, of greater uh, levels of uncertainty. But here, here's a little story I just thought of that um, I don't know if people know Palouse Falls in, in the southeastern corner of Washington. It's the a beautiful, weird Badlands area. I find it very haunting. It's on the, um, if you go a little bit further uh, east, you, you hit the Snake River and, in Idaho. Um, but I happened to be sort of hiking and photographing there. And I was with one of the, the great Native American 
uh, rock art experts. And uh, we're looking at the, at the waterfall. It's just it's this amazing chasm that appears out of nowhere in this just barren uh, section of, of uh, kind of badlands roaming fields. And we're up in the rocks, and there's this beautiful great blue heron just on the wing, you know, just soaring, but but close enough so you could actually hear a little bit of the gristle in the wings, you know? So, yeah, it looks beautiful, and it looks like it's doing this with ease. But on the other hand, there's this powerful, physical, flying thing with a heart that's pumping, you know? And you can hear some of that musculature working. There's work there. And I'm, I'm, I'm just blown away by this bird and I look to the rock face and I realized my friend had kind of set this up in a way. He didn't get the bird in the sky, but in the rock is a petroglyph of a great blue heron. It's unmistakable. Mm. It's beautiful, beautiful line art. Perfect. But the kicker is it's 5,000 years old. Yeah. And, you know, I looked at that and I thought, okay, right. Somebody a long time ago was here and saw a great blue heron, just as I am, and decided to make this symbol of it. Well, think about that a little bit more. You can have the desire to do that. I had that desire. I couldn't have made that beautiful, beautiful carving in the rock face. I mean, that was just, I couldn't draw that. Most people couldn't draw that well on paper, you know, in, under the right. best circumstances. But to do that on this rock face, I mean, it, it staggered me. Then think about it a little bit more. Okay, what does that great blue heron carved into the rock face signify? What does it mean? Well, I'd suggest it can't be reduced to that level. It doesn't. I was going to say. It doesn't. It means. It means what it is. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's a direct expression of life, and that is to me where the magic of language started, and all downstream from there is unfortunately a, a kind of dilution or, or or degradation of that power. So, are you suggesting then that the closer people tried to get to having the symbols that made up our language mean things um, or perhaps even even record things, that's when the degradation sort of began. So there's this sort of proto-pure, uh, you know, the guy sees the, or the girl, sees the bird and then feels compelled to capture that image on a rock because of how it made him feel. So, he's, you know, it's this sort of transference of, of feeling and then you get into art that uh, that quote unquote means something, and that's when it starts to roll downhill. Yeah, yeah. You know, think about th- when we say meaning. I always think of that in terms of portability. Hmm. You know, we're trying to export that experience of the heron in the sky, the heron in the rock face. We're making a symbol of the heron now. We're using that as a metaphor for all sorts of, you know, the experience of, of, the, of the innate, inherent vitality in the world. Um, and that symbol doesn't really, it fights against that. That's what our most interesting symbols do. They resist that portability that we call meaning. They fight us a little bit. It's not as easy to pass that on to you. I mean, think of like, uh, take like a book that is really, really important to you. Maybe it's a very rare book, something that's not, you know, just reproduced and available on Amazon at a click of a notice. I mean, you might want me to see that and share that book, but I'd understand if you said, look, Chris, I I really would appreciate you not taking it home, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, You can have a, sit on the couch and just really, you know, have a, have a look at it here, 
You know, we, we insist in our society that everything be portable, everything be inclusive and transferable like money. You know, it's good everywhere. That credit card is good everywhere. But that's not true of so much of, of great art. There's a lot of music that just doesn't make sense in certain places, you know? Mm, um, it, yeah. it, it's contextual. Uh, and, and, you know, the linguists talk about, in terms of language, they talk about content versus context. Uh, English is, is very high content but very low context. Whereas, you know, say some of the, some of the Asian languages are, are very high context. You know, it's about inflection, it, subtle differences. You got to pay attention, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, that the magic of, of language starts with a demand for people to pay attention. And the secularization, the degradation of language is, how much can you, you know, think you understand with as little attention spent as possible? You know? Correct. How's that for a model? I mean, geez, you know, no wonder we're, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. I like this idea of the portability of language. I almost think of it as, you know, a person picking up a book or something, and as they carry it around and as it passes hands, uh, something is just sort of being lost. You know, it's becoming more and more inert as it's been sort of passed from from person to person or place to place even, you know. Um, there is something to, there's a sort of balance between not being maybe a hoarder and uh, take me for instance, I don't really care what happens to, let's say an old Stephen King paperback, but I do care what happens to my grimoires. My grimoires had their own special box when I moved here to Oklahoma, there was the box for the books and then the box for the grimoires, mostly because I didn't want there to be a sort of Indiana Jones thing. Remember that movie where the, the ark burns a hole in that wooden box right? <laughs> in transport? Yeah. Just thinking of the, all my other poor books. But um, so basically those books, which are literally books of magic and spell, um, they separate themselves from the rest of the they're kind they're close to um, maybe how to books or something of that nature. They're books that actually do something. And the point that I'm trying to make in a very roundabout way is that I'm very interested in this idea of books that mean something, quote unquote, and then books that are in a sort of constant state of of becoming, of happening. Like books that become that 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 are as alive as you and me, right? And at any given day, uh, a, a book like, I don't know, the the Higromantia or something like that, at any given day, my relationship to that book could be as different on, on both ends of that relationship as it is between me and my wife or me and my dog or you and I. Um, those are the really interesting books. Those are the books that you don't let people take home with them in the same way you wouldn't necessarily let somebody take your wife home right <laughs> unless that's unless that's your thing because the fear <laughs> is that the that the relationship of the uh, of yourself to the book is such that you feel like it might be changed when it comes back right and that to me is getting into an extremely occult place with language and and books and I think what we're kind of getting close to but it's so so freaking difficult to get to it is that this is the difference between a a work of art or something that is very important and I'll say it indelicately the kind of trash that's produced every single day now by many 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 writers there's another hot take we have we had two episode two we have two hot takes well you know this makes me think of a moment on my uh recent road trip I was uh I was in the town of Caliente and uh you know, we mentioned last time that it kind of town names that are straightforward are, are kind of fun. I mean, it, it really lives up to its name. But I was uh, I visited the uh, the train station, a beautiful uh, Spanish style Union Pacific train station. And out in front was this old wooden farm cart, and it was neatly divided in two sections. One 
On the right side were a bunch of old paperbacks, books to be given away. If you if you wanted one of the books, just take it. It's fine. You know, and there was a, the usual sort of list of suspects, a Danielle Steele, a Clive Cussler, you know, uh-huh. a couple of old diet books, you know, these kind of sad sort of dog-eared, sun-faded paperbacks. And on the other side of this wooden cart were old tools, you know, there was a couple of old rusted railroad spikes. There was this hole puncher, like the kind of thing you'd use to make holes in a belt, you know, in a leather belt. Um, there was this uh, blacksmith tools. And the difference between the two sides of the cart, I mean, here you had some discarded books that had, you know, some of them had been enormously popular, you know, not that long ago. And then you've got these really practical, heavy tools that that really had some substance to them. And I, I've been thinking a lot about that. Of, 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 I want my writing to be more on that left side with the tools, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think there's, there's a yard sale for all of us who write to find, um, you know, one of our books. I had a writer friend who that happened to, and uh, he just about fainted. He was at a sort of this really, you know, a yard sale with cabbage patch dolls and, you know, broken lawn mowers and, you know, old, you know, like silly sort of uh, stuff. And um, right next to this uh, Bart Simpson doll that had had half its head, you know, chewed off by a dog, he sees this paperback and he realizes, oh my God, this is not a dream. That's my book. And, uh, oh, and I, and I nice. said, did you buy it? Um, you know, did you, did you, and he said, no, I, I just, I had to leave. I had to just get away. And I thought, well, you know, that happens. Um, That's sort of like seeing your own grave. Exactly. I think that's hilarious. I mean, I just laugh my head off because, you know, I, I could just see the whole thing. You know, I mean, this is what uh-huh. this is what it was all for to end up on a really sort of funky table next to a dog chewed Bart Simpson doll. You know. Oh. Yeah. So th- there, there go the rest of us here. Eventually, it reminds me of. My uncle, who was, was quite a character, he passed away a few years ago, unfortunately, from lung cancer. But he was a guy from West Virginia. He used to take me out on the Shenandoah River every summer. And we would fish, and I would climb this tree that had this rope swing on it uh, that would go out way over the lake. It was dangerous as hell, but nobody cared back then. I mean, it was, you know— do it at your own risk. If you break your neck, we'll, we'll figure it out after that. Right. But my uncle always had what he would call his snips. And in his belt, he would have, uh, yeah, just a pair of these little uh, needle nose pliers that he would use to, uh, you know, fix uh, weights to the fishing line. And he'd use it for all sorts of things, get hooks out of fish's mouth. Uh, when he was at Back at home, he would always be working on projects around his house, and he would always have his snips around. And those snips became sort of their own creature. So the more and more a tool is used and the more it's important, it's almost like it becomes a more solid thing in the world. It's not a plastic piece of trash. It's something that has its own personality and spirit. So what I'm trying to say is when you were telling me that story about the the tools that were on the side of the of the books it's kind of like you know if if somebody were to have have purchased those you're taking on some pretty intense uh spirits there you know like those are those are living things almost at a, at a certain point they absolutely that was ex- that was my total intuitive sense that i was in the presence of fully organic even almost sentient cultural artifacts they were only fixed in space and time on a very basic level, I felt that they were communities of learning. Each implement in the box or on the on the top of the cart, it was amazingly uh, organic and occult, and yet f- absolutely practical and and real in every possible sense. But I, I want to pick up on what what you something you just said. 
Think about those words, needle nose pliers. I mean, there, there may be something wrong with me, but I just think that's beautiful to say. You know, I think so too. I, I, I love the physicality of that. It makes me think of, you know, someone once asked W.H. Auden, you know, what does it take to make a poet? And they were expecting, I don't know, some sort of deep philosophical, you know, someone who has great things to say about the meaning of life. And Auden answered very simply someone who unconditionally loves words. Hmm. And I mean, I think he was really talking about fetishizing words, which I don't have a problem of. of I mean, I think that's exactly what uh, what writers do. Certainly, I mean, I did that from the very f- first memories of childhood. Words seemed incredibly, weirdly alive to me. Um, uh, and I think to regain that sense, um, was it Baudelaire said that, that genius is the ability to regain childhood at will? Um, I think that's a beautiful idea. Several people have, have, have you know, made remarks like that. But uh, here's an interesting exercise, which I'll challenge you to do uh, on air right now. It's one of the exercises I do in my, uh, my classes to help students rediscover some of the original magic of words. Remember, Emerson said every word is a fossilized poem. And it's, it's hard to get back to that state of, of original magic. I ask people to take their name. They're free to use their first name or their last name. I think we'll use your last name in this case. But I want you to turn Osborne into a verb. Okay. You know? But Mr. Fuller said, you know, that he felt like he was a verb. Uh, mm. What would to Osborne be? What would that mean? Um, you ever have a plastic water bottle and you try to put the cap on it and, and you drop the cap on the ground and you start swearing because you're trying to quit nicotine for the 12th time because you feel like it's really necessary, but you know, you pick up the cap and you go to put it on the, on the water bottle after having dropped it and you spin the water bottle cap and it falls to the floor yet again. (laughs) That is to Osborne. <laughs> okay, okay, and of course you 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 stoop down and pick the cap up and and put it back on again, it, right? It, yeah, yeah, you that, don't that, give that, up. That's right. <laughs> that's right. No, well, I can't just leave it on the floor. That would be silly. A fly could get in my water, or I could spill it. Um, there is there is that. I really like this exercise. So if I'm really thinking about it. Um, that's actually that's the first thing that came to me and i was semi-joking but i think that's actually pretty accurate because i am sort of clumsy and a, a lot of the art that i make and the conversations that i have with people are a sort of fumbling around in the dark for something but i just keep picking the bottle cap back up until it's in its place and i get there eventually and that might be, uh, to some people, that might be frustrating. They might not enjoy my company because that is frustrating to them. But then to other people, it's part of my my charm. So I would say that the effectiveness of your exercise and other exercises like it. Uh, so I, be- I went on a podcast called Rune Soup yesterday, and the first question that Gordon asks people is are you were you a weird kid and so you'll have people like uh, like rupert sheldrake coming on ready to sort of give their rote answers that they have given in 100 interviews before and that one question is designed to snap them out of that and to show them that the thing that you think that you know the best which is yourself you actually might have forgotten a little bit in your heady quest for all these different philosophical and scientific and whatever notions. So I really like that. What is it to, what is it to Saknasem? Okay. Fair question. Come back. Well, first of all, congratulations on the rune soup thing. That is a really, really cool uh, podcast. Uh, It's, it's a major audience in in the field of occult studies and a whole range of interesting stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with you're you're in great company there so i think that was really really cool well done uh well you know 
to Sacknessum is to never accept that something isn't worth paying attention to. Um, that everything starts with the simplest apparent things, that those are the keys to much, much bigger things. For instance, uh, I happened to go out to dinner with a friend the other night. First time I've been out to, uh, to a restaurant, really, uh, in locally since, uh, since that virus that people talk about uh, sort of took hold of things. And there was something left on the table by, well, I wasn't sure if a waitress had left it or uh, an earlier set of diners, but clearly the waitress had not picked it up. And it was a poker chip. Well, I live in Las Vegas, and that's not that unusual. Um, But normally poker chips don't wander out of casinos. They're worth something. They're a kind of money. Mm -hmm. And... It sat there, and I thought, there's something incomplete about this situation. Something in this poker chip is like a puzzle piece that wants to be found. And I was sort of running through my mind while still trying to pay attention to my the conversation with my friend. And I thought to myself, I know something is going to happen to this chip. And sure enough... As we were leaving, we'd been there, you know, for like an hour and a half to almost two hours. Someone came back looking for it. And I, the puzzle was complete. And I think that that's, I'm always looking around for these little scenes that are forming that, um, just wondering about the, because there's mysteries around us all the time. There's weird stuff happening if we would only pay attention to it. And I often pay more attention to those peripheral things. So in answer to your question, I think it's uh, my name is Verb is to try to see out of the corner of, of the eye. Yeah, it's one of the things that I miss about smoking cigarettes because you get so much good <laughs> material when you're out smoking cigarettes. I switched to the damn vape a few years ago and it's just not the same. You don't go out for any reason. Nobody really cares if you vape inside as long as you do it discreetly so but yeah man when i'd be i saw a couple of um guys standing outside of the gas station by where i live and as we've kind of gone over before i live in an area with interesting characters and they were chatting about something and i thought god i wish i could have an excuse to stand here and try to eavesdrop on these two guys because no matter how banal the conversation seems now it's going to there's going to be something in there there's going to be a nugget because that is where i live right oh which reminds me i have stuff to tell you ab- about things that we addressed in an earlier episode tell me um this is actually pretty cool so we have been getting um well i've gotten a few emails from people who've listened to the show who have kind of given general thoughts about it thank you to those people by the way Um, but the most interesting thing that happened was, um, I posted a picture online of the Griffin mental hospital that I live near that I'm fascinated with. And a person named Talam introduced me to this entire subculture of people who are obsessed with the Griffin area. Uh, kind of a group of like underground conspiracy theorists. This is a very Lovecraftian type beginning to a story, right? Um, to basically have someone say, oh, I noticed that you're interested in these kind of strange buildings. Uh, well, here is an entire sort of Discord server of people who live in Norman. And, you know, they think that the lit piece of land that you live next to uh, harkens all the way back to an ancient bronze age battle between lost civilizations for that and that the and that the um and people have been saying that you know the smithsonian has dug up stuff around the griffin grounds and has 
uh, basically buried it. There's what a sort of uh, sub conspiracy of sort of ancient aliens and giants and things like that is that organizations like the Smithsonian um, very specifically cover that kind of thing up at the behest of the of the world government so that people don't lose their minds. Take from that what you will, I suppose. But the fact that there were um, this whole underground world of people who were devoted to figuring this kind of stuff out, I thought to myself like, oh, this is going to be a fun mystery for the podcast. And I figure I can give little updates on a weekly basis as to as to what's going on with these with these strange people who are looking for the lost history of something that I live literally a quarter of a mile from. Like, did I just move to an extremely occult place, an extremely powerful, magical place? It's it's entirely possible, which would be awesome for my life and for the show. Well, that might be part of the energy that you found moving back. You know, we were talking about PowerPoints. I mean, that that's that sounds to me like a really, you know, definite power. I mean, ancient aliens and giants. I mean, I just love thinking about that, you know. I I I I want to live where there used to be giants. I'd like there to be giants right now, you know. Uh, How cool would that be? It's uh you know getting back to this the the magic of of you know anomalies and anomalous people i i was thinking the other day too you know we mentioned about when you came out to vegas and i have a great photograph which we should probably share with the world where uh you were uh posing with a little person mr t you know mm-hmm. and i i was I, there, there's a bar downtown called atomic liquors and i happened to be there during uh, the locals have a trivia contest there, and uh, this is sort of a an argument against political correctness and the degradation of language. But the leader of the team, the table that was winning, was uh, in today's parlance a little person, and what we not so long ago would have called a dwarf, as in a kind of magical person, like a, you know related to giants. And as he as he got sort of drinking, he said, "You know, I I I hate this language of little people. It, it makes us sound like children. I I'm a dwarf, and when I was a dwarf, I was making real money, and now all I get is free beer." <laughs> And it was just fantastic, you know. It was the magic of the path, the giants, the you know, all of the the cool stuff that percolates behind and underneath of all language and culture that we, most of us anyway, have some sort of natural inclination to get back to. Um, that's where the the action is. I mean, the fact that it's based around a mental asylum. I mean, that's just beautiful, isn't it? We know. That all the shamans and and brujos have, have, have often get you know considered insane. Um, mm-hmm. That's where some great art has emerged: the art of the mentally ill, art brute, uh, outsider art. I mean, mm-hmm. you're at a you're at a PowerPoint, you know? Yeah, yeah, I very well might be, and uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of a. a making some some strange books and you know you mentioned you know mentally ill people who have made some pretty great outsider art and um i think that's a topic that we're going to get into next episode correct yeah there's just it's too big a field to touch on it's just such a wonderfully rich uh world of of mixed media um i mean We've got sort of William Blake meets Frida Kahlo meets Harry Parch meets Rube Goldberg, private worlds, shrines, amusement parks with secret meanings. I mean, some of these people were, I don't know, I I think there's so much to say about them and they're so inspiring, particularly for artists today who who feel like their work isn't uh, appreciated. Um, Well, we need to look at some people who are really not appreciated in the moment but who may have been creating 
ceremonial magic in a very direct, physical, tangible way. So I look forward to, you know, that. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, thinking about this asylum thing, I, I don't know if I've told you this before, but um, when I was uh, in, in college, before I, I worked as a hospital orderly, I was a janitor. And I, uh, my big assignment was to sweep down with this huge, soft broom uh, the entire uh, college library from the top reading room in the clock spire, you know, a big steeple, New England style, all the way down to the lowest study hall. And so I, I needed a little bit of uh, substance help uh, to get through that task. And um, so I was eating some mu mushrooms one day and I'm um, just having a, a good old time sort of. And, you know, cruising between these amazing, you know, aisles and aisles of books with that smell of, of library books, you know, the smell of the best smell in the world, the halls of knowledge, you know, it was just like a, a, a physical thing. And as I'm cruising along, I, um, I knocked a book off the shelf and I said to myself, okay, this is, this has some significance out of all of these literally millions of books going down, you know, floor by floor by floor. I knocked out this one. This is a message and it's meant for me. So I went over and I picked it up like picking up a bottle cap off the floor to put, you know, I was trying to restore that order, you know? Mm -hmm. So as I was Osborning and I picked, you were Osborning. That's right. I picked up the book and you, it was a book with amazing black and white photographs as well about the care of the feeble-minded and insane in the Southwest, Texas and Oklahoma, circa about 1912. So it covered the time between the, the late 19th century and the very, you know, pre-World War I, uh, um, you know, America of how what an insane asylum really looked like and the categories of feeble-minded. Like, what's the difference between an idiot and an imbecile? You know, that was a technical <laughs> distinction at the time. I mean, I, I was – so I, I've got my broom, you know, leaning against the books and I'm just I'm, – I'm just stunned by the photographs. And I thought, look, I, I don't support theft or shoplifting anymore. Everyone does a little bit of that when they're young. But I thought, there's no way I'm going to put this book back on the shelf. I've got to have this. This is my personal totem. This was speaking to me. Something is in this. So uh, I put it under my shirt and, and left with it. And um, it's one of my magical books, you know. And I do now know what the difference between an idiot and an imbecile is. Um, what is it? An imbecile is someone who or in the, in the old terms, uh, was someone who was incapable of learning, someone who has a learning disability that affects okay. them from really advancing past a certain point. But they're, they're not an idiot. Uh, an idiot is, is a, basically a lower level of IQ, or was in those days, however that was determined. Um, but the imbecile implies someone who's functional um you know someone who might be uh, able to be a janitor for instance uh, like me you know and some great outsider artists which we'll talk about next week were in fact janitors uh the great african-american james hampton who uh made the throne of the third heaven out of aluminum foil anyone who who sees that i, I challenge anyone not to take a deep breath um because even photographically, it is just simply haunting and startling. Uh, Henry Darger, who we'll talk about, was also a janitor. Um, so a lot of great people have been janitors. But yeah, imbeciles and idiots, magic, you know? Um, that seems to me to be a good place. I'm so excited. I wish that we could actually get into the outsider artist right now. But we have to parcel these things out so that we don't, you know, go overboard. But Chris, thanks again for showing up uh with me here and for your time and for your stories 
And I want to throw something out there to people who are listening. There is now an email address. It is thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. So if anything that we talk about on the show resonates with you, if you have any questions or concerns, I thought that uh, in future episodes, probably not for a few months, but after a while, we'll um, begin a dialogue with listeners on the show and maybe read some of those on the air and uh, help those to sort of steer the craft around, right? Because I like the idea of it not becoming this sort of hermetically sealed thing where it's just myself and Chris, but you know, where we invite everybody to uh, find out what it means to, to have a, a home and a country and, and a practice and to talk about magic and all those beautiful and wonderful things. And uh, you know, maybe you can even correct us if, if we, if we get something like idiot and imbecile wrong, right. <laughs> They're like, actually it's the other way around. Well, that's really important. I, we we want to be a self-correcting, uh, you know, craft moving forward, and feedback is really important. I've I've got some very interesting comments from friends around the world, uh, and a couple of people that uh, I, I I haven't met, um, you know, sending a message uh, through social media. We definitely want that kind of of uh, transversive dialogue, uh, and we're also going to be sharing some. Uh, Suggestions for further study and reading. Um, I, I am uh, a, a teacher in some way, and I can't sort of help myself when I, you know, hear about some things. Uh, so there'll be some suggestions about uh, documentary films, music to listen to, uh, books to check out. We we want to you know really build this sense of community. That's where things uh, started between uh, David and myself. Is that that search for uh, home in the sense of community of fellow travelers you know that's really important so we look forward to uh feedback and suggestions and just uh yeah knowing that the uh there's connectivity in the world exactly all right perfect once again that is the butterfly in your mouth like the title of episode zero at gmail.com uh Thanks for listening, everybody. Take it easy, Chris. You too, David. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye.